Dear friends, hear the word of God according to the gospel of St. Luke. Now, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent departed and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven. And glory in the highest heaven, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, however, said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones would shout out. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, many of you know that uh, a group of us, 55 of us, about three weeks ago, returned from our trip to Israel, and some of you also were with us three years ago in 2019. Uh, We are going to plan another trip in a couple of years, but it was such a joy to walk with many of you in the footsteps of Jesus in Israel, in Nazareth, in Cana, in Capernaum, Caesarea Philippi, and down through Jerusalem into the desert. Uh, to Masada, to Jericho, and all in between. On our last night together, the group presented our son, Andrew, Sherry and our son. He and his wife went with us. They're still honeymooners. He was part of the leadership of our group. They presented him on that last night at our last supper together, this beautiful olive wood carving of Jesus. It was complete with robe, crown of thorns, and cross. They had it shipped here to Brentwood, uh, so nothing would happen to it on the way in the plane. We shipped it with other relics that we found along the way there, and it finally came uh, last Wednesday. When we opened up the box, the container, and removed the bubble wrap, the figure was still intact with one exception. Something was missing. They had shipped Jesus from Jerusalem to Nashville without a cross. I searched for it for a few minutes. I looked all, I couldn't find it. And it occurred to me as I sort of rummaged through the brown paper that perhaps there are some, even among us, who would prefer a Jesus without a cross. It's interesting to me that in Luke's gospel, as early as Luke chapter 9, Jesus seems to know it's coming. In fact, chapter 9, verse 51 says, and I quote, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, notice 
I've italicized the words taken up. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was determined, even in the shadow of a cross. It's interesting to me that phrase taken up is not a throwaway line. It's very telling. In fact, it's passion talk. It's very much like John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me. And then the very next verse, John 12, 33, clarifies the phrase. Now, Jesus said this to show the kind of death that he was going to suffer. Lift it up. He sees it coming. In fact, in Luke's gospel alone, he predicts it three times between chapters 9 and 19. His last prediction happens in the chapter before what we just read, chapter 18, verse 31 and following, which says this, Jesus took the 12 apostles aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. There it is. And all that is written by the prophets about me will be fulfilled I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me, insult me, spit on me. They will flog and kill me. But on the third day, I will rise again. And what's interesting is, in the very next verse, notice the response of the disciples. Luke says, they didn't get it. And truth be known, they didn't want it. And neither do I. Maybe neither do you, neither do we, especially the part where Jesus says a little later, look, whoever comes after me must deny himself, herself, pick up their cross and follow me. Sometimes I'm among those who would prefer to have a Jesus without a cross. I'm mindful of the scene by the sea, by the Galilean lake, You remember where Jesus fed the 5,000. In fact, when we were on our trip, we visited this site at a place called Tabka on the Sea of Galilee where this miracle occurred. There's an edifice, there's a church that's built over uh, that particular rock where that event happened. It's called the Church of the Multiplication. And in John's Gospel, chapter 6, John says that after Jesus fed this large crowd, 5,000, this multitude, that the people said to one another, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And furthermore, it says that they wanted to crown him as king on the spot. And yet John 6, 15 says, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and make him king by force, he withdrew himself from them. Now, why would he do that? Why withdraw from people that are trying to have a coronation at that moment? Jesus was king, but he wasn't exactly the king they expected. They wanted a king, but they wanted a king with an iron scepter. They wanted a ruler with a sword and a shield. They weren't looking for a king with a cross. I think the same is true today. I think everybody wants Jesus as Lord. Everybody wants Jesus as King, provided that I get to choose the platform, right? Some of us want an American Jesus. Some want a Democrat Jesus, Republican Jesus. Some want a Western Jesus, an Eastern Jesus. Some want a Southern Jesus, or how about this, a Yankee Jesus. 
Some of us want a libertarian Jesus or a feminist Jesus. There's all kinds of Jesuses to go around. But we don't get to choose the platform. It's fascinating to me that Jesus' platform is not based on political expedience or military muscle. It's based on suffering love. It's based on shared sacrifice. It's based on peace. And it always comes packaged with a cross. Always. Now you see this, you see glimpses of this in the triumphal entry that we just read. In fact, you'll find that passage in all four Gospels in some form or fashion, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on this day that we call Palm Sunday. The pathway that Jesus was walking from Galilee up in the north down south to Jerusalem is roughly about 80 miles. So if you're walking it, and they were, it would take the better part of a week to walk this 80 miles on foot, if you can imagine. And what's even more interesting is the pathway south to north from Galilee to Jerusalem is completely uphill. It's interesting that wherever people were coming from for the Passover, uh, they were ascending up because Jerusalem was built on a hill, right? It's Mount Zion. It's on a mountain. If you look in Psalm chapters 120 to 134, those 15 psalms there are basically songs called songs of ascent because Jews on their way to the feast in Jerusalem were walking uphill and so they would sing these songs of ascent, they're called. It was uphill all the way, regardless of where you were coming from, uphill, 80 miles. What's intriguing to me is that after all that walking for a solid week uphill, when they finally come to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem, about a half mile, around Bethany and Bethphage, Jesus chooses to ride the last half mile, which is all downhill, on a donkey. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I would have said, where was that mule back in Galilee? Uphill 80 miles, but the last half mile, the easiest part of the trip, downhill Jesus is riding on a donkey. And you have to ask, what's up with that? What's he doing? Jesus is making an entrance. Jesus is making a statement In fact, he's fulfilling the prophet Zechariah. He's orchestrating the prophecy in Zechariah, written five centuries before, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem, for lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and listen to the rest of the prophecy. And he will cut off the chariot, the tanks from Ephraim. He will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. He will cut off the crossbow, and he shall command peace to the nations. And his dominion, his kingdom, shall be from sea to shining sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth." Jesus rides that last half half mile, mile on a mule downhill because he is choreographing 
the messianic prophecy. And by so doing, he's staking his claim, and he does it without ever saying a word. Jesus is effectively staging a demonstration, a display, a counter-display to King Herod Antipas, who when he made his annual entrance every Passover into Jerusalem, he came on a war horse escorted by an entourage of sword-swinging shoulders, whose goal was to demonstrate to the Jews and to anybody else there the power of Rome and to suppress any and every challenge to the empire. And Jesus comes on a borrowed colt with a ragtag, unarmed gang who aren't swinging their bayonets. They're like the angel choir waving their palm branches and laying their coats on the road before him. What's he doing? He's redefining power. He's giving us a new definition of kingship. He's displaying for the world an alternative kingdom that isn't based on shock and awe, but it's based on shalom and goodwill. It's not based on Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it's based on the shalom of God. And when he comes into town, the crowds respond, Yasha Anna, which in Hebrew is Hosanna, which literally means, please save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest heaven. It sounds a little bit like the angel chorus in Bethlehem at the time of his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards all whom God favors. He's making an entrance. Now, I don't know why it is, but I've discovered that sometimes peace is more difficult to achieve than chaos. We discover time and time again in our world, don't we, in no uncertain terms, that peace can be even more taxing than chaos, particularly to those in power. Even the religious leaders who were now in cahoots with the politicians in Rome were concerned that this little exhibition in Jerusalem would be perceived as a threat to the power of Rome. And so they tried to stop it. We often do, don't we? They ordered Jesus to muzzle his followers, to silence, to mute them. And I love Jesus' response. Listen to what he says. Hey, even if I could shut them up, the rocks would cry out, glory and honor. Reminds me of Luke 3. You remember when John the Baptist was preaching? He said, even these stones can become sons and daughters of Abraham. You can't stop the praises of God's people. I appreciate it so much, Laura, you bringing up our Ukrainian neighbors, our friends who are suffering and have been suffering now for well over a month. I was reading the other day in one of the newspapers how there is a small town, a small city in Ukraine that is full of little churches. There are 20 pastors in the area. And the newspaper said that only two of those 20 pastors have fled 
the Ukraine. Because, said the article, shepherds don't abandon their flocks when trouble comes. Bullies and bombs can't silence faith any more than thorns and nails. But of course, in this scene, this procession ends in grief, doesn't it? If you read the very next section where we left off, it says in chapter 19, verse 41, as Jesus came near and saw the city, he had a meltdown. When he saw the city and he saw his people, he broke down and wept. And in his prayer, he said, oh, if only you could see the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. What would begin that day as a coronation on Sunday would end up as a funeral procession on Friday. And the shouts of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord would be changed into give us Barabbas. But you can't have Jesus without a cross. Many of you have asked about our Israel trip. Are we going to have a program? Are we going to have slides or any of that? What was meaningful? What insights did you gain? And, and I, I believe you could probably get 55 answers to that as to what, what it meant. I know before we left, we, we said that everybody would have an epiphany, but it wouldn't be the same one and it wouldn't be in the same place. But I want to name one that I had. There's a site in Jerusalem called Caiaphas's house. Now, you know the name Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death. The scriptures report that it was at Caiaphas's home where Jesus' trial occurred on Monday, Thursday. If you go there today, you know that there's, there's a little chapel built over the cave, which perhaps at one point was Caiaphas' house, and down in the bottom of the cave was where Jesus was detained while he was awaiting the verdict for his trial. We actually went down like two stories down into that cave where it was dark and dingy, and I had planned to read, I intended to read, the trial scene with Caiaphas from Luke. But when we got down there, as you can see in this tiny space, there was a little stone lectern, and if you look closely, this is exactly the way it was. There's a notebook on it, and it was opened to Psalm 88. And so I put my text aside, and I looked at the caption on that page, and it suggested that Jesus who knew the Psalms by heart and knew where the way was going now might have recited this particular Psalm. It's a lament that he might have recited these sad words as he awaited trial. And so I put my Bible aside and I read from that stone lectern these verses, 18 verses from Psalm 88. Oh Lord my God, by day I cry out, at night I clamor in your presence. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my call for help, for my soul is surfeited with troubles 
and my life draws near into the pit. I am numbered with those who go down into Hades. I am a man without strength. My couch is among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no longer, who are cut off from your care. You have plunged me into the bottom of the pit, into the dark abyss. Upon me your wrath lies heavy, and with all your billows you overwhelm me. You have taken my friends away from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I'm imprisoned and I cannot escape. My eyes have grown dim through affliction. Daily I call upon you, O Lord. To you I stretch out my arms. Will you work wonders for the dead? Will the shades arise to give you thanks? Do they declare your kindness in the grave, your faithfulness among those who have perished? Are your wonders made known in the darkness or your justice in the land of oblivion? But I, O Lord, cry out to you with my morning prayer. I wait for you. Why, why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why hide from me your face? I am afflicted and in agony from my youth. I am dazed with the burden of your dread. Your furies have swept over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They encompass me like the flood all the day. On all sides they close in upon me. Companion and neighbor, you have taken from me. My only friend is darkness. For a moment, in that cave, we couldn't speak. There was pin drop silence, and I articulate it as the fact that every one of us in that tiny cave, in that dark and dingy place, were stunned by the humanity of Jesus. Now, I, like all of you, believe in the two natures of Christ. That's why we have two candles on the altar. One is one is for the divinity of Jesus and the other is for the humanity of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't human, he cannot identify with my sin. If he wasn't divine, he can't save us from sin. But in that dark and lonely place, we were mystified by the humanity of God. That same night he prayed that he might avoid the cross. But he added the word nevertheless. That's an important word. Let this cup pass from me, he prayed, nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. Because he knew what we know, that there is no Christ without a cross. There is no salvation apart from undying, unconditional love. By the way, just so you know, just before last Wednesday, we threw out the box that contained the relics that we brought home from Israel. I found it. <laughs> it was there underneath on the bottom of the box Underneath the brown paper was the cross. And of course, we put it back where it belongs. 
in the arms of Jesus. There is no Christ without a cross, and there's no discipleship either. <laughs> not without shared suffering, not with a, without a deep sense of humility and suffering love and sacrifice. It was A.W. Pink who said, taking up my cross means a life that is voluntarily surrendered to God. Last word. Some of you know the name George Studdard Kennedy, World War I chaplain and poet who, who wrote a poem just for today about the passion. It's called Indifference, and I share it with you in closing. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep, for those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Nashville, they simply passed him by. They wouldn't hurt a hair of him, they only let him die. For men had grown more tender and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them for they know not what they do. And still it rained the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home from Nashville. They left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and said, give me Calvary. In the shadow of a cross, you cannot remain indifferent, not to that kind of love. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. May we take it up as we follow Jesus along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.